Hi, my name's Andy Dan, the founder and CEO of Capital A, and welcome to M&A Q&A. Today we have Andy Friedlander, founder and CEO of the sports presentation company, an events agency that's behind some of the UK's greatest sporting events. Andy has produced sports presentation programs and ceremonies for hundreds of televised world and European championships, including FIFA and Eurobasket. The sports presentation company was founded in 2011 and by focusing on fan engagement beyond the in-stadium sport itself, it's become one of the go-to sports events production agencies in the UK and Europe. Andy has led the business through years and years of growth and eventually caught the eye of Smile Group, who they were acquired by in the late summer of this year. Since then, TSPC has been merged into Smile, where they've started to plan for even more growth under a bigger company banner. We're going to be finding out what it's like to be acquired, some of the pitfalls, some of the good stuff. I'm really happy to have Andy on M&A Q&A today. Andy, welcome. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. It's interesting when you're down in the kind of grind of every day to actually look back and go, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, we do do that. And we have done that. And we are that. Yeah, exactly. You've had a pretty exciting history. In fact, we're going to jump straight into the history bit. We always do a quick background check on our guests each week. Can you tell us a bit more about how you got into the communications and events world? You've been involved in PR, it looks like, since the 90s. And uh, very excitingly, you worked on uh, Chris Evans' Ginger Media as part of Virgin Media Group. So I'd be interested to hear about how you got started with all of that. Yeah, I mean, I weirdly, I don't know why I pushed back against the term PR. I think it's become a little bit greasy in recent years, but effectively communications was the gig. Yeah, I went around Soho as a graduate with a CV that looked like the front page of a newspaper, knocking on doors, literally like, hello, I'll come and work for you for a week. Can I do this? Can I do that? You know, spent a couple of weird weeks as a runner on various production houses, just legging it around Soho with a bag full of tape. Um, and eventually chanced across Virgin Radio, got offered a month internship, obviously smashed it because I was there for seven years working with the marketing director. So, yeah, exciting time. And I think not just the timing of me arriving there in my career, but in terms of the world, it was that kind of Britpop 90s era radio were, was at war, you know, commercial versus BBC. So every front page newspaper was Spice Girls, Take That, Blur, Oasis, blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, rode that way for a good few years. And, and with respect, Chris Evans, who has changed somewhat now, but at the time was a pioneer. Um, and I think he doesn't necessarily get the respect, looking back, of the fact that he was an advocate of that kind of immediacy, you know, change things up, shake things up. And then radio, it allowed for that. You could pop into a studio and make something happen. TV was always quite staid and boring, and he came along and, and liberated it, really. And I think you'll see a lot of the formats now, a lot of digital now. Everyone goes, oh, I had an idea in the morning, and I delivered it in the afternoon. Well, he was doing that 25 years ago. So, um, yeah, I learned that and audience engagement a very early time in my career. Yeah, it seems like it was a really exciting time to be involved in the media. And also with Chris, yeah, I mean, he definitely invented that that genre, didn't he, of that sort of uh, immediacy, and it was very sort of youth culture-oriented. I think it was there was a lot of transformation in youth TV around that time. So what exactly was your role there? So you, uh, it was a large part of Virgin Group, wasn't it, the, the Ginger Media aspect? So you were working on PR. Was there other elements of what you were doing? It sounds like you were quite heavily involved 
in actually producing the shows as well? Not in that instance. So we, we did have an involvement. And again, it was the kind of environment where if you had an idea, you could feed it to one of the DJs and then build it into a show. So there was creative opportunity. There was an agency who dealt with Chris personally from a PR point of view. But my role was all about, forgive the pun, amplifying the radio station, getting the talent we had on air out there into the public eye, you know, magazines, TV shows, press opportunities. And then, you know, telling our listeners and would-be listeners exactly what we were doing, how we were doing it, why we were different, and kind of creating a bit of a community around a radio station with a single interest, which is in the genre of music they happen to play. Mm. Yeah, it was a really exciting time. I actually worked at MTV in the, the early noughties as well. I mean, we still used to get facts from Radio 1. I guess Chris Evans probably would have been involved at that time. But we used to wait for the, the playlist to come through, and then we'd pick the videos for the shows for that week. So yeah, it was a very yeah, and, time to be around. Yeah, and two examples which might people might not remember but i think still resonate one is the idea of this big hit don't forget your toothbrush was revolutionary in that up until that point audiences at game shows had sat there passively you know laugh cards came up and the people who were going to win were the two people who had been pre-selected to compete and he just flipped that where anyone in the audience you rock up with a toothbrush and a suitcase on that very night would be off on a holiday so it was a great idea of Again, immediacy, revolutionising the format. And then I think the other fun story, there was a show on the Saturday afternoon, which was just a regular music show. And Chris woke up one morning and just went, why don't we have something called rock and roll football where it's a music show, but whenever there's a score from the Premier League, we'll just read out the score. Because that way, his thinking was, the guy in the car, and this was the 90s, but the guy in the car gets the result of the football and the family gets, to listen to the music without being bored by the commentary. And it's just the idea of going, oh, we can do that, was not popular at the time. And he had created, as I said, the opportunity for people to think differently. So I learned a lot about that because it's about what the audience wants, not what the producers just go, here we go, this is what we're going to give you. <laughs> so it must have shaped the way that you've worked over the years as well, that kind of free thinking and that nothing's off limits, basically. <laughs> Definitely. And, and I think, you know, we're going to talk more about sports, but sport is and has been traditionally a lot more of a conservative, less um, risk taking environment. The brands tend to do that rather than the events themselves. But, and, you know, I think some of our success has been challenging that. So you seem to be straddling the worlds of broadcasting, journalism, and business. I like that you've got journalism experience because this is my background as well to some degree. So I'm really interested in how you work between sort of that journalism background and creating content and running the business side of things? Because you seem to be really good at both, both putting on the shows and you seem heavily involved in that as well as um, as well as running the business and growing the business. Yeah, I think a little undecided on exactly what I wanted to do in my 20s. So I was having fun. I was enjoying it. I was learning. And my wife, who I met while I was working in that environment, was a journalist and is a journalist still. And so she kind of, by default, was doing a lot of travel. So I'd go along as the bag man, as the plus one, and just kind of follow her around, go to a nice hotel, smile sweetly when requested at the managing directors. But over the course of that period, what we look back on as metrosexuality became a thing. So instead of men being ashamed of, going to have a spa massage or skincare looked at or what have you, I was kind of, again, through Suzanne, just kind of dragged along and started doing more of that. And eventually was asked 
by people she knew to go, oh, can you give a male perspective to that? And I'd had experience writing. I'd written kind of basic stuff at university on a, a theatre and film course. So kind of gave it a crack, enjoyed it. And so kind of caught a bit of the bug there and did it as a sideline alongside the day job, bearing in mind in comms and PR, you're writing press releases and all that kind of stuff. So I understood the world, but it also refines your ability to communicate clearly and succinctly and directly about things that you hope people are interested in. So what was the metrosexual bit? Were you reviewing items from the the hotel or what was that bit about? So it's, again, changed dramatically since then, but it used to be that the, I don't know, Times, Daily Mail, Telegraph would send a motoring correspondent who was a sorry, but a fat 50-year-old who knew about cars to go and have a massage. And he'd go, oh, that's the best massage I've ever had. How many have you had? Uh, That's the only one I've ever had. So now you're asking your readers or your listeners to head off and spend a lot of money somewhere, and your conduit to that information is basically someone who knows diddly squat. So I kind of was able to articulate maybe a bit more detail about that. And, um, yeah, again, I, I enjoy writing. I enjoy that process. But I probably wouldn't have done it without my wife dragging me along in that instance. So I think this is quite an interesting aspect about agencies in particular, because it's quite a creative environment. So people like yourself who've got a sort of journalism background and, you know, you're very creative with production and and the stuff that you're doing there are also thrown into this business world as well. So you're having to do lots of different things, wear lots of different hats and manage your creativity and not let that sort of clash clash with having a smart business head and that sort of thing. Um, I'm keen to get into that a little bit more as well, how you manage to balance those two sides of your personality. But let's get on to the bit where you decide to create the sports presentation company. The name's a bit of a mouthful as well. So tell us a little bit about why it's called that, how that started and how you got into that. Sure. So I'd, um, like many kind of had half-assed aspirations to be a presenter, absolutely loved sport, didn't really have the chops or the commitment to go into acting. And so here I am going, how can I get to express myself when I'm young? What opportunities are there? And I guess through a little bit of fluke and bluntly alcohol, someone once said, Virgin Group at the time had bought a rugby league franchise called the London Broncos, and we were in a bit of an evening out, and someone said, you know, we're looking for someone at half-time to jump up and have a chat to the fans who'd be up for it. You know, what do you think, Andy? And I was, yeah, yeah, that sounds brilliant. So two weeks later, of course, you stood in the middle of a pitch with a bunch of rugby league fans thinking, what the fuck have I got myself into? So that was kind of the start of it. And then, you know, as a young guy with a job, I was earning a couple of quid at the weekend doing it for London Broncos and then subsequently a rugby union club. And that gradually grew into Twickenham and home internationals for England rugby. And it was quite an embryonic um, industry. You know, this was instead of the meat raffle and the old boy doing it, this now became a bit of a show. A bit more showbiz. Yeah. And so I was very much involved with that. I worked extensively with, with Wembley and England internationals, the FA Cup, over the course of 15 years. And you get loads of other opportunities with different sports. But but to your point of the question, what is now known as a functional area within big organisations, local organising committees, as sports presentation, didn't really exist. It was kind of a phrase that was used within the business. And so with the Olympics coming in 2012, and knowing that it wasn't a, an event, you know, I obviously was supportive of it, but it wasn't an event I felt was going to 
be a catalyst for my career on the grounds that post-Olympics, everyone with Olympics in their name was on the market. And I was kind of, no, 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 how can we get ahead of that curve? So registered the domain sports presentation. It's a little bit of a Ron Seal name when it comes to, you know, who we are and what we do. But it served us quite well. You know, we have previously picked up work where people have Googled sports presentation and pick up the phone. So, you know, I think to your point and your question, after being in and around that world for a long time, I did have the moment of going, like many entrepreneurs, I could do this myself. Why am I watching other people do it worse than I think I could do it? And boom, threw my hat in the ring. Brilliant. So you started out actually presenting. So you were doing the sports presentation stuff. And then that's grown and grown into like full production stuff for awards and all sorts of things. So those larger gigs that you started to get then, how because you're working like particularly in soccer doing some really big stuff. How did you get those gigs? Were you pitching for the work? And how did that evolve from just presenting at half time to, to production? So I think the advantage. I certainly benefited from is when you're working with the bigger organizations, you know, the the acronyms, the FA, the RFU, the UFC, you are perhaps listened to more seriously when you're speaking to those aspirational rights holders who are going, actually, we want to be on the big stage. So we were able to take a lot of what we learned working with those organizations and, you know, serve smaller ones who couldn't necessarily afford the infrastructure with creativity, a bit of technical assistance, you know, staff, operational management, all of the assets and the things that they needed to deliver big events, but didn't necessarily have in-house. I think the catalyst also was when I started stepping away from being in front of a microphone or a camera on the grounds that there is a certain sense that the front man, if you like, is not able to do the work that's required in the planning and the process and and i think there's some validity in that there's a certain creative and operational disconnect that you know anyone who runs an agency has experienced in their own way and i think i just felt probably four or five years ago as much fun as it was i needed to kind of move back a bit and focus on the business aspect rather than you know thinking that anyone other than my daughter recognized me <laughs> <laughs> so do you still do that side of things or are you literally just working on the business i get the occasional call so i've got a couple of things i do which is pure for fun but realistically there are better looking younger slicker male and female presenters who just have instagram followings and that's now a thing when i started out it was more about reputation and ability um, and i respect that now if you can amplify your event and get more people involved because you've got a 50,000 follower Insta star. Why wouldn't you? So no aspirations to start TikTok accounts and get a following yourself? I've, I've featured, I've featured certainly as a as a bystander or a background dancer, but um, no. I'm so just, to, just to give us a bit of a flavour of those types of events, can you, can you list out some of the, the people listening to this now won't really understand the sort of... Uh, the hugeness of the the events that you've been involved with. So yeah, a couple of Champions Leagues when they swung into Wembley as a presenter, and that, as you'd imagine, involves within the stadium, kind of voice of God, they call it, MC, host, whatever, but, but keeping the live experience bouncing along, which increasingly is very much aligned and in parallel to a broadcast experience. So the the, and we'll talk in a moment about my passion for the live experience. Obviously, TV is incredible, and the the advances in 
viewing, enjoyment and engagement are there to be seen. But within the stadium environment, everything needs to be moved along. There needs to be a narrative, a story. So Champions League, um, I think 15 FA Cup finals, including uh, we did produce some brand activation around the final that I was also hosting. So how that came together. And then the nice thing about particularly fight sport, you travel. So um, I was with the UFC for a couple of years as an in-octagon announcer. Still a niche sport, but amazing. Did some work with Cage Warriors. I've done world title fights for boxing promoters. So you end up, you know, in the in the heart of what is going on. And again, that has always served me in having great visibility of there's the sponsorship team, there's broadcast, there's sport management, athletes, celebs. You know, how do you bring that whole piece together? So you're joining the dots on, on some of these gigs you're working on and you're, you're able to do some sort of agency side stuff as well. Mm. Yeah, that's Absolutely. amazing. So, uh, so let's get a little bit more up to date. So you've been running TSPC for how long now? Um, I think coming up, it, next year will be 12 years. Dirty wow. dozen. The dirty dozen. So last autumn, you were approached by the Smile Group. So obviously, I know a little bit about this as it was my company that helped them find you and set that deal up. But can you talk us through what this process has been so they've acquired you into their larger group and they're a private equity backed company but the, t- the time that i introduced you to them we were actually talking then about you doing your own your own roll-up so you were looking at acquiring some other businesses into your company and you put that to one side and then kind of switch sides of the deal and then got acquired yeah. but can you t- talk a little bit about that time you know when you were you were thinking of doing a roll-up and then smile started speaking to you yeah, I was trying to think of the analogy of whether you're a, a poacher turned gamekeeper or whether you're a hunter turned prey. I don't know how it works. Yeah, look, simply 2019, we were doing really well. We were growing. We were going international. And it, it did strike me that there was a value in us potentially owning some of the means of production. So was it a kit uh, supplier for PAs or screens? Was it um, a lighting company? Was it a crew company was it a creative agency digital social so hence we've we'd opened a dialogue about okay what does that look like what would we need in order to be able to facilitate that and i know you know capital a understand the the instruments and the tools required and the strategy around that so yeah we'd had a, a good conversation things were looking up a couple of people started getting a cough the government got nervous and the event industry took a bit of a pause it did. It did. And uh, yeah, funnily enough, we got asked by our client Smile at that time. They were looking to find companies that were involved with rights holders in sports and, and specifically creating events or, or producing events for those rights holders. So obviously, we made the introduction to you. So tell us a little bit about how that went. What were those early conversations like with Smile? Did you think at the time our oh, deal was going to close or what was going through your mind? Sure. I think the the big, um, and this is obviously with the benefit of retrospective thinking, I think any entrepreneur I've spoken to or any individual I've spoken to who runs a business says to themselves and says out loud and whoever is listening, they kind of go, in five years' time, I'm going to sell my business for 10 million quid. And there's actually no logic or plan, strategy, anything that links this timeline or this magic number with the reality of their business. So when, and it is flattering to be approached by a company such as Smile, that came in, 
you start kind of going, okay, let's let's have a look at this. First of all, is it realistic? You know, are we genuinely acquirable? And what, if anything, have we got in our setup that might be an exposure, a risk? It, and this is about the business security, not just about the negotiation, where clearly if there was exposure, you'd be beaten down. So you start looking, I think, internally first at going, okay, if this was going to happen, are we sale ready? And what around that do we need to prepare? Which in turn makes you think, shit, we have got some things we're exposed to that whether the sale happens or the conversation progresses, we still need to address. So it, it was actually a nice moment to reflect on the strength of the business, you know, how much could we withstand we've made it kind of through covid through a little bit of pivoting and also was an acquirer part of a growth strategy or could it be done without them so i think you know and i've got a bit of a a bit of an analogy metaphor to use shortly but but one of the key bits is they were really great people so once the conversation opened we realized you know, we had knowledge gaps, we needed to scale, we'd been looking for some kind of a partnership with possibly a bigger non-conflicting entity in order to offer us some security, operational expertise, exposure to different markets and, and people. So once we'd start getting into that conversation with Smile, it was a long time until we went, yes, this is an actual reality. But in the process of having that conversation, I think we we kind of straightened our backs a bit and went, yeah, actually, yeah, this could work. So the the sort of initial feeling, I think, when you get approached is like all of your stuff's a mess, isn't it? And you understand what it looks like, but nobody's going to understand this stuff unless you do loads of work to tidy it all up. So I suppose there's sort of a mild panic at that stage. So you looked at the business again, you realize actually we've got something that really we really could actually sell. And then what did you have to do at that point? Did you, I guess you speak to your accountant and you think, what do we need to tidy up? What do we need to provide for them? Yeah, I think those are all aspects that I'm not brilliantly disciplined at. I've always been, you know, more creative, sales focused, you know, energy driven rather than the detail. But the discipline around the detail was something I had to embrace. So, yeah, we we did a lot of that. We did a fair amount of our own due diligence around what would it look like if, with or without. Again, it gave us the opportunity, I guess, and afforded us that chance just to reflect on what is our plan? Which direction are we going in? Where do we want to work? Who do we want to work with? And, yeah, I mean, there is a fair amount of accountancy to look through forecasting that kind of planning stuff evolution and their welfare so yeah there's a lot to think about um so just wanted to get into the 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 sort of sort of mindset that you have to get yourself into as well so what would your advice be around that so when i mean i don't know whether you had multiple approaches or whether you just spoke to, spoke to smile but what's your advice around dealing with those approaches from interested buyers? Um, yesterday, I got an email from a gentleman who said, never heard from him before. Hello, I've got a cash buyer for your business. Are you interested? To which I responded, please do better research next time. So the first thing is people waving money are not the people who want to buy your business or are serious. You know, there is a 
there is a, a way to do it and a professionalism and approach and genuine sincere companies who won't waste your time will know how that approach happens um and clearly you know capital a do so i think being mindful about that is important but also if you are an agency owner whatever your turnover is you know a million quid 10 million quid staff count 50 plus it doesn't matter i think my experience tells me that if you are already thinking about it and it's something you are considering then happy days maybe out there is a buyer and you're already aligned i wasn't at the time expecting an approach and so not that it took us by surprise but it did require a little bit of adjustment to we're not in the market so why would we as opposed to i want to who's going to be the uh, acquirer so there was a little bit of a mindset shift around that definitely right. yeah i mean that that is our, our speciality actually so we don't actually look for agencies that are for sale already we actually look for something that's going to be a match for our client and then go out and find the best the best fit and then obviously those are better deals than just an agency that's put itself up for sale um, yeah I think just if people are thinking about it and if if they are looking around, my kind of slightly weird metaphor was was around houses, actually. So are the are the foundations of the acquiring business secure? Because you need foundations if you're going to build a house, right? So are those foundations secure? Have they got longevity, steady growth, all the all the things that you need at the base of that acquiring business? If they're going to be the new home for you, then thinking about the building analogy, the structure. So organization, have they got the right departments, the right people in the right place? Have they got a, a strategy, a purpose? Are they kind of aligned with your values? Because that is going to be, that's going to be some of the fundamentals of the building. Then you get to, I guess, interior design sort of layout. So in thinking like that, how are you as a business owner and your business going to fit in? What is that going to look like? Where's the, the kind of day-to-day -day value, the support, the integration going to be once you are inhabiting that new space? Then you've got the soft furnishings, I guess, the, the slightly more touchy-feely, emotional, character-driven stuff. So dealing with people, have they got time for you? Are they supportive? Do you respect them personally as well as just their professional achievements because you're going to have to work with them on a day-to-day -day basis and you're going to have tough times you're going to have good times are they going to be there and and then also kind of who are your colleagues going to be because as much as every deal the seller wants autonomy the reality is you know people are buying you because they want to grow you and make money which is cool so how is that kind of going to look and feel and then i guess the final part of a house is how you live in it right the lifestyle so if that analogy extends it's how are you going to be in that new space how much time are you going to be given to do your thing are you allowed to step back and spend some time with your family are they going to be judgmental if you need an afternoon doctor's appointment and have family concerns so you know i know it, it is a bit but the foundations the structure the interiors and layout the soft furnishings and then your lifestyle for me was that kind of it's a good way of thinking about it yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy. Did you find that Smile kind of presented that at the Starks? One thing I really find with with buyers is they don't really understand that they have to sell themselves to the seller. They kind of go in, like you say, waving the money around and thinking that that's enough. Not all the time, obviously, but but sometimes they, they're waving money around and feeling that that's enough and that they they need you to present 
to them. But actually, it's more or less the other way around. You need to go and you need to put your stall out and present what it is, what the big idea is and why you need to to make this acquisition and where you're going to go with it. Uh, So I'd be interested to know whether that happened or whether you had to kind of go out yourself and get that from them and kind of extract it and how long it took to, to get those conversations. Not at all. Um, I didn't know much about the Smile Group prior to us opening a conversation. So I obviously did some research, but they are a genuinely and sincerely good bunch of people. So it's not a facade. It's not a kind of, yeah, we'll hide our, you know, we'll put our values up front, but we operate a different way. And so it was no surprise that their approach to this was not his a big bag of money um and it was never about his big bag of money it was about are we aligned i think the analogy keith who was the chief exec who is the chief executive smile who i kind of dealt with in the process used was it's kind of like a marriage do you like each other do you see a future together and you know is it going to be enjoyable and then from then on the the rest of it starts becoming hope for the future, right? So we didn't talk about money for a long time. It was more about me understanding their culture, how they'd grown, why they'd grown, how they treat their staff, what their ambitions were, why we were relevant culturally to them and the future. And only after all of those courtship elements did you then start thinking about, you know, engagement rings or when you're going to live. It's, it's funny you should say that because we we do often say that we're like a dating agency. It is much more about personalities and people being able to get on with each other long term and cultural fit than it is about anything else. Money certainly is important, but it comes in kind of last after you've got everything else right. So can you tell us a little bit more about the deal itself? I know it's probably a bit sensitive as it's all pretty new, but can you tell us about that and um, what their offer was or or what the deal looked like maybe in a more general sense and also whether you had any advisors on your side did you have any professional advisors involved or did you just fly solo not at all no and and i definitely definitely heartily recommend getting a whole wide wide amount of views around the deal itself you need people who kind of really quiz you push you challenge you as to why are you doing this? What are you doing it for? What is the value for you? You know, again, financial, lifestyle, timing, sector growth, appetites, all that kind of stuff. But I was, um, I'd engaged later in the process, Hill Dickinson, their MA team, who I've known from a previous business I've been involved with. So um, a guy called John was great there. But that was more on the legal side. The accountancy, um, we used our current bookkeepers and accountants and they were just able to make all the kind of numbers add up and help us i think the other key bits i'm part of a business coaching group so shout out to john elaine luke um to kevin to ollie to sismin and lee who is our kind of team leader that that allowed me to air some of my personal feelings around what was happening so that they could feed back and, and give me a bit of insight there and then my friend Nori, who is in the property game, is just a hard-ass deal maker. So um, in some of the early calls, he kind of sat with me so that afterwards he could go, they're asking for this, they're trying to do that, and just give me a little bit of a knuckle-duster approach so that we felt we were getting a favourable end result. Right. So you had actually advisors all around you, lots of your own network. It sounds good, the business coaching group. That sounds like something really good to fall back on and get lots of advice. But in terms of the deal and the deal structure, are you able to give us, I mean, obviously we don't want to know exactly about amounts, but in terms of like, was there cash up front and multiples and things like that? Is there anything you can tell us about? 
Interesting. Everyone talks about multiples in detail. I think with, you know, love to ourselves and what we do, this was a business that always needed me to continue for a period of time. It's interesting. I've spoken to a lot of people who go, oh, you sold your business. You got loads of money. What are you going to do? You're going to retire. And it's, I'm not selling a brand that exists in its own world that someone else can pick up and distribute. You know, this is a service operation. So I was always going to be tied in for a period of time, which is which is what we've done. So there were incentives up front. There were forecasts set. You know, that is still a day-to-day challenge. Whether we were acquired or not, we are trying to get to a particular point in time. And then, you know, the, the way that that was structured was a little bit of risk on the side of Smile, who, you know, if tomorrow I decide, actually, I'm going to be a greengrocer or a Pilates instructor, there are some protections. But then the flip of that, we are all aligned on if we win, we win together. So um, there is a period of time during which I am incentivized. And we didn't do it on multiples. We actually did it on a percentage share of EBITDA. It just felt a bit more natural that way. And I think one other bit of advice which I would share with anybody is the reason it felt comfortable is it means we benefit of a percentage of what we achieve without having to hit a particular target. I've heard shock stories where the acquiring company manufactures some cost, apply it to the smaller agency or the agency target. Subsequently, they miss a a threshold or a, a benchmark that they have to hit. Then there's effectively a default on that payment. And the entrepreneurial sellers go, well, hold on a second, you've manufactured that. So I would always advocate that a share of EBIT means if it's big, you get a bigger share. If it's small, you get the same percentage. But all of you are aligned on what that looks like over the kind of three, five, whatever year period. So I know it's pretty new as well. So you're just sort of sorting a lot of stuff out between you all uh, as you are integrated into the large business. But post-acquisition, can you tell us about any downsides that you've experienced so far, any sellers regret, or equally about benefits? I mean, what what is that like at the moment? No sellers regret at all. Again, if I was to go down this path again, I'd choose exactly the same people. I think if there were a bunch of suitors, I still would have ended up selecting Smile as individuals, as a business, and I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. I've watched it pan out over the course of a year. Just a great place to be. And everything they do and want to achieve is, yeah, sure, let's make money, but they're good folk and they treat people well, which was always what we wanted to do. And they allowed us to do that on scale or will you know, as we grow. So no regret in that sense at all. And again, back to values. In fact, they're helping us develop things like our sustainability manifesto so we can make events better. We probably wouldn't have focused so much on that had we have not joined them. I think the other thing which prevented any regret is I had a weird and simple metric around the deal, which was, is it favourable or unfavorable. That was it. You know, the number might be high or low, or what, but if I felt it was favorable, then it was the right thing to do based upon a whole bunch of other, you know, personal choices. But by doing that, I'm now fully committed. They understand us. We understand them. I think the downside, which I've noted, and maybe other business owners or partnerships would be able to handle this more easily, depending on their size, is integration with a bigger business is quite demanding on time Mm -hmm. so we're recruiting at the moment for example 
So if you are a senior account exec, a producer, an assistant producer, you've worked in activation and you want to get involved, please do. Um, please hit us up. We're growing. We need you. But even that process of recruitment, in my head, it was, oh, yeah, there's a team to do that. But actually, you need to meet the team, brief the team, understand how the team work, what their network is. They might filter out some of your potential staff, but you still need to go through the process of recruitment. So perhaps naively, I thought a bit more of my day-to-day functional challenges would be taken away. They will in time, but right now it's quite intense because it's how does the operations team work? How does the client services team work? How does HR work? How does so there's I didn't quite foresee the demands on integration, but you know, it's a positive process. Yeah. So it sounds, yeah, quite grueling to get through this first part of the integration, but it's going to get easier at some point. So definitely worth yeah. it. Yeah. Um, the time management, I think, is not ever something that I took as seriously, and I just can't urge people enough. It's a side hustle to get the business to be sold while you're trying to also run the business. And once you've sold it, it's a little kind of part-time job just to integrate while you grow the business that they've acquired with certain targets. So, yeah, I had more hair, let's just say that, a year ago. and Come to the right place. For, for it, wasn't, it wasn't great. Yeah, no, I know how you feel. I've been through the process myself, and yeah, we're we're currently getting investors in, and it is a it is a, a side hustle. I like that. It's a good good phrase. Everybody's talking about that, but when you're trying to get investors or sell a bit of your business, it is a massive distraction. So every week, we always ask our guests about the funding part of the deal. What can you tell us about having private equity backers involved? So, I mean, this is becoming more and more common with private equity getting into marketing and communications a lot more now as well. I know you haven't been acquired before, so you haven't really got tons to compare it to, but has that changed anything about the deal for you, that there's private equity funders there? Not at all. And and in reality, my involvement with Smiles structure as a group, which is where the investment is, is pretty much zero. That's um, above and beyond what I need to get involved with. So. Sure, the acquiring company in this instance, Smile, clearly have people they need to discuss these kind of acquisitions with, but there's a clear strategy, a solid chairman. But in reality, on a day-to-day basis, it's my P&L and our profit margins and our growth and development and pipeline and operational prowess. That's kind of the focus. So I, I don't want to claim to know anything about the demands of PEVC or any other investment entity in this instance. So you've been pretty much unaffected by the fact that's all going on in the background. You're just dealing with the guys at the agency. That's really good to know that you've had a positive experience because I think a lot of people are a little bit scared of getting involved with private equity. They feel like they're going to set the bar too high and just make it really painful. But it it sounds like you've had a good experience. Yeah, I, I mean, again, going back to prior to this acquisition of us when we were looking at acquiring other companies i did have a few meetings with various pe houses and i think often we underestimate sorry overestimate growth and i think the whites of the eyes of a private equity house very much is looking at that growth as a singularity. So, you know, as a business owner, an entrepreneur, you go, oh, we're going to grow this and the money and the people and the creativity and the cultural influence and all the things we're trying to achieve are equally important. 
you move into that world where they don't, I'm saying this with love and respect to that sector, but they don't care what your welfare policy is or how much paternity leave or maternity leave or, you know, your internal staff structure may or may not be. Ultimately, it's about the number. And I think that is where, I wouldn't say I got shocked, but one has to be pretty well armed going into those environments if you are thinking about it. Mm, yeah, so they're not too bothered about the f- the fluffy fluffy stuff. Okay, so let's get up to date with the sports presentation company now. So where are you now, and what's the future look like for the sports presentation company within Smile? Constantly pushing creativity, meaningful experiences and connections. I mentioned earlier on about live. I'm quite passionate about the live experience. I use and love digital. I follow technological advances, but my analogy was always you know, whatever your sport, if the goal goes in, the first thing you do is you grab the person next to you. Or if you win, you grab a child, a wife, a mate. The first thing you do is not look at the phone. So I, I'm I'm quite passionate about making sure that we utilize digital to create a live, meaningful experience as opposed to, you know, just staring at the screen. So we're pushing that forward. I think the business itself wants to get back international. Prior to COVID, we had a fairly decent footprint. So we're looking at some of those bigger projects. We love the big stadium one-off opening ceremony style, picturesque spectaculars, of course. But I'm excited about a lot of increasing global kind of tours. If you think about when F1 takes over a city, it's not just about the racing. It's about the fan zone and the nightclub and the social media exploitation and the fun and the content. And it becomes kind of quite all-consuming. And and I think I can't get away from an agency conversation without using the word immersive in 2022. But we like the idea that you're entering a, a kind of world as opposed to just, I'm going to watch some sport. And I think fans need more of that there's more challenge on the on the money and i think rights holders and clients want more of that in order that they can stand out so we're continuing to do that and um you know i call them takeovers maybe but that kind of way of walking into an environment and everyone's with you is something we want to do more and more of okay so the future of fandom is changing but you are pushing the boundaries for the actual experience for the fans um so Thank you for everything today, Andy. It's been really good, really interesting. I appreciate it. It's good to get the other side as well. Quite often we're speaking to buyers of agencies, and it's really nice to listen to your experience uh, being bought. Can you tell us how we can stay in touch with Andy Friedlander? Where can we follow what you're up to or get hold of you? As you'd imagine, we've had our hands somewhat full, so we're not super proactive on all the channels, but LinkedIn's always good. I'm always happy to take a direct email, af at sportspresentation.com. Instagram, there's a few bits and bobs about what we do at Sports Presentation. And yeah, we're not on TikTok yet. Okay, get yourself on TikTok. It's where the action is. All right, brilliant. Thank you very much. We'll stay in touch and I'll speak to you soon. Appreciate the time and involvement, Andy. I really do. Thank you. Brilliant. Cheers, man. Bye. Bye now.